welcome to a bonus episode of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and I'm driving and a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. That's right. This bonus episode is coming to you live from Tony's car as we drive through the glorious back roads of New Hampshire. Yeah, we are on our way to pick up some interesting beer from a local brewery, get out of the house a little bit and enjoy some great scenery. It's good. It's a good time. So I thought it would be fun for us as we're as we often do when we're in the car talking to bring everybody else along in our conversation, but with a twist, because this is a bonus episode, let's answer some questions about ourselves that are often posed to us by our listeners. How do you feel about that? Let's do it. I'm an open book. Okay. This is great. And everybody should know we're sharing a microphone. So this is like truly interview style. So let's start with a question that I see posed to us quite a bit. I think because people are just curious based on the theology that we hold and all the various conversations that we've had, that first question is, what kind of church do you guys attend? Well, I think my church is probably more well-known from the show because we talk about it a fair amount. I'm a member of a small, very small Baptist uh, church in rural New Hampshire called New Hope Community Church. Uh, My father-in-law, who is... Jesse's father is the pastor, and I am the only additional elder. Uh, It's a congregation with 10 members. Uh, It's kind of a general Baptist with a Reformed bent kind of a congregation. That's a great answer. Everybody can't see how well you're navigating the roads. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the, the roads back here are pretty empty this time of year because people don't want to be outside in the cold, so it's not too tough. Yeah, that was an excellent answer. I, again, I wish all listeners could just see you while we were making that turn and you just expertly answered that question. So yeah, I'll go next. Uh, maybe we haven't talked about the church too much that I attend, I but it's so. it's kind of like a secret, so to speak, I guess, but not one that needs to be this way. So I actually attend... <laughs> Texts are happening in the car. This is fantastic. I actually attend a Christian and Missionary Alliance church. So that might be a a lesser known denomination among some of our listeners. Um, But uh, it is born out of uh, A.B. Simpson about 100 or so years ago, who was a Presbyterian minister and then actually broke off from the Presbyterian church to start the Christian Missionary Alliance, which in his mind at least had a stronger emphasis on evangelism, both local and global. So to all my CMA brethren out there, that is the church I attend. So I think a good follow-up question would be, and we get this sometimes too, is what do you, you know, both of us in some ways, we don't want to say this. We, I think in many ways, the churches we attend are reformed to some degree, but they don't carry maybe in the name brand that kind of recognition. So what's one thing, or you could say many things, but one thing that you really like about your church that carries all of that good reform theology that we're often talking about? 
Well, I think one of the one of the main things in the reform tradition that isn't uh, it's not exactly a distinctive, but I think it's called out in the confessional statements a little more is that when we are united to Christ, we are also united to each other. And for our church, we are a very small congregation. Like I said, only 10 people. Um, I could easily memorize all the phone numbers of all the people in my church if I wanted to. And so there's a real sense of of being bound together that I think sometimes, especially a larger church, you, you miss out on. You probably have your smaller group of people that you feel really bound to. And then there's a, a fair number of people that you would be able to name. But then there's probably people you wouldn't even be able to name. Um, our congregation is so small that everybody is up in everyone's business, but in like the best way possible. <laughs> That's it really is life together, right? I mean, when you talk about the ability to know one another and to sympathize with their weaknesses and to also come alongside them and celebrating the things that are great that are happening in their lives. That seemed, that's the church I grew up in. That seems pretty part and parcel. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we had a little bit of a history lesson at our last um, congregational meeting, which is always good to sort of review the history of your church. And our congregation has never been larger than 40 or 50 people. Um, and it's never been bigger than I think 20 or 30 since I've been there. So it's always been kind of a small country church, um, which I think really the culture has grown up around that. It, it very much is, you know, I think every church says, yeah, we're like a small family, but it, we really are like a family in that there's there's a true knowing of each other. And I just think that's really, it's really important and vital. And I think a lot of churches miss out on that. Yeah. It's funny how so many churches that are larger, just by nature of the pragmatic size that they try to replicate that concept, right? Either by something called like small groups or home church or, but it is driving back into the family of God by getting people intimately equated with, equated with one another's lives. But that can only really happen in a relatively small group. I mean, it's, I think, have you, have you heard this discussion about what is like the proper size for a church? And then when does a church need to have small groups? Because is it fulfilling its mission, so to speak, if people aren't doing that kind of life together? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a question that has a variety of different ways to answer it. I think my perspective has always been that when a congregation becomes so large that the man who's responsible for shepherding it, the, the, in kind of Presbyterian terms, the teaching elder, um, with the cooperation and assistance of the, the ruling elders or the, the elders, when they can't keep track of the congregation, that's when it's time, I think, to—, to do a church plant or something along those lines. I know a lot of churches try to manage that by doing small groups or they have multiple teaching elders and each one is assigned to that. But I'm, I'm of the conviction that the church's upward limit really is determined by when the, the teaching elder who's responsible for that congregation is able to properly fulfill his uh, obligations, which involves things like visitation and knowing the, knowing the flock. Kind of like if you had a, a shepherd who couldn't keep track of all the sheep that he was assigned, you wouldn't necessarily just say like, well, we're going to subdivide up these this flock into smaller flocks that are still a part of the big flock. You would probably um, either bring on another shepherd who would be able to take a portion of that flock and be responsible for it, or you might even, if there wasn't the possibility of doing that, they might make a decision to sell off some of the sheep to someone who could take care of them better. Um, so I think that's that's the way I would answer that. I know there are lots of other churches that have different perspectives, and I don't know that there's any one answer. I, I think there's probably a lot of different ways to look at the question. Of note, though, we just a few minutes ago drove past a church that had a nativity scene, and I did think for a brief second about pulling over and going Zwingli, but I figured uh, us getting arrested on our, I think one of our first bonus episodes probably wouldn't be so great. Although it really make for great listening. 
like if I just grabbed the mic with us, we just ran out there like panting. People were like, what, what's going on? And then I'm just yelling at you, grab the baby Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But that, don't look at it. But don't look at it. Yeah. Keep that to yourself. So uh, on my part, this is one of the things that maybe people will find strange. If you were to go to my church's website and you can do that, it's the name of the church is Emmanuel Christian Missionary Alliance Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. You can look it up. What you'll see if you go to any of the About Us information is you're not going to find anything there that talks about kind of overt reform theology. However, one of the many things I appreciate about this church is their firm commitment to evangelism as seeing that as part of something that God has commissioned in the Great Commission for all of the people of God to be participants in. It's not some kind of bonus. It's not something that you get to choose as part of the buffet of Christianity if you so desire, but instead it is really part of what it means to come alongside and take up your cross and to follow the Lord Jesus closely. It's what he commands and what he commands, he gives all the energy, the efforts and the wherewithal to actually perform. And so my pastors, because they have a strong fidelity to the scriptures, they just preach a reform style. Whether or not they would call it that, they're preaching the full counsel of God, and I love that. So I think this is in some ways surprising people because we often will talk about the great, the great longing to be part of something confessional. And yet I think there can be various gradations of confessionalism with respect to whether it's formalized or not. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I mean, I, I think even talking about what it means to go to a confessional church is different for different churches. So a lot of people don't understand that most of the time a quote-unquote confessional church, it, it's not the congregation that uh, subscribes to the confession. There are some denominations where that's the case, but in most most of the major reform denominations, the subscription is something that the ministers do and the, and the elders and deacons do. So I think, you know, I, I don't, I guess I don't know for sure, but I would think my pastor would be able to subscribe to the 1689 without any sort of scruples or, con, you know, convictions against that. Um, so I think it just depends on where you are. And I think a lot of times too, we also neglect to remember that the point of confessions is not to set up some standard that is above above fidelity to the scripture, it's a way to summarize the scriptural teachings in a way that can hold the people who are subscribed to it accountable. So I think there are some churches, like ours is, our congregation is probably a mixture of mostly reformed-ish people, um, but probably more along the lines of like MacArthur-type reformed and Piper-type reformed, rather than sort of classically confessionally reformed, when I think about the congregation. But also they're just committed to what the Bible teaches. So if, if they were to come across something that uh, was biblical that was also listed in the you know confessions. They wouldn't have a problem in any sense um, affirming that confession. And a good example of that is our pastor regularly quotes from the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Confession when they are closer in phrasing or closer in substance to what he is trying to argue from the scripture or teach from the scripture. He regularly quotes from those instead of like some sort of rigid fidelity to only quote from the one that says Baptist in the name. Um, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different understandings of what it might mean to be confessional. And it's always good. I mean, everybody is confessional in a certain right. sense. Everybody has a confession that they they confess. By definition, that's part of what it means to be a Christian. And I think this desire to be confessional in the sort of the capital C sense is a desire to be connected to the historic reformed movement. But I think a lot of churches probably 
are connected, just not in that sort of real formal way. And I, I think that's okay. I mean, I think ideally every church would would be connected to the historic uh, Reformed churches in a, a really specific, explicit way. But I also think most churches that are kind of lowercase are Reformed are probably not too far off from, from one of the confessional statements, whatever it might be in the first place. And I think the more that our churches desire to make sure that they are aligned with Scripture, that they're desiring to dive into scripture, to know God more fully and completely, and to be subservient to the scriptures and to good teaching of the scriptures, the more we tend to shade or tilt, kind of move in that direction anyway. So there is a misnomer of saying you're confessional, but you could, of course, that could just mean that you give some kind of intellectual assent or you, you stand behind or get covered underneath the shadow of the document itself. And you could still be really far away from that in both life and practice. So to me, I just love churches that are willing to go after the word of God and to be changed by it and to let it read them continually. I think when we do that, we find that we have better conversation, that we're actually after the center of who God is and what he has for us. And the more our theology will move in that direction where it becomes reformed. So we've talked a lot about how reforms and Calvinist and Luther, these can all be in some ways pejorative terms and just turn people off. But what we find is that they gravitate toward them anyway. It's almost like the Death Star. That's a bad example. But you know what I mean? Like you can't, you can't escape that gravity. When you're longing for the scriptures, when you're longing for the truth of God, when you're willing to go where the truth of God directs you and only there, I think you find that you keep getting centered back into those confessional documents. But in my mind, it would be far better to have them in your hearts, in your practice, in your mind than it would be to just say, well, we post that we are, so we are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, and there's plenty of churches that um, have some sort of outward fidelity or outward commitment to a confessional statement that just don't even hold the theology of that confession. So like the PCUSA, which I don't think it's too far to say is an apostate denomination, um, they still outwardly say that they subscribe, whatever they mean by subscription, to the Westminster standards. Um, You know, Doug Wilson's church subscribes to the Westminster Confession of Faith, even though I think most of the people who study Reformed theology and understand the the intention behind those documents would say that he's contrary to them on a number of points. So I think, yes, it's good to have an outward statement that your church or your ministers subscribe to a particular confession. I think that's good because then you have the ability to know what they're teaching. It's a public statement of what their theology is. But that that's not everything. Really, you have to look at the church's teaching and understand if that teaching is actually faithful to what the Bible says. And that only reason we would attach a confession to that is because we believe that particular confession is a faithful summary of what the, the Bible teaches. But you could you can have a church that says it's a you know it's a three forms of unity church, but then denies um, limited atonement. Uh, there's nothing stopping them from saying they they are a you know three forms unity church. It's not like there's a confession police going around doing that. I mean, I know Scott Clark tries to be, and he does as good of a job as anybody can. But at the end of the day, we can't make anybody actually believe anything that they say. Um, so it, it's really just a matter of assessing a church based on their scriptural position. And if their their arguments and their understanding of scripture lines up with what the Westminster or the London Baptist or the, you know, the Belgian Confession, whatever it might be, if it lines up with that, then they're a confessional church, whether they outwardly say it or not. Two things just occurred to me. One is how much would you love it if there was actually confessional police <laughs> and they would come in and raid a church and be like, get on the ground, yeah. <laughs> CP. Yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. I think that'd be sweet, but they'd have to be like the SWAT teams. They have to like crash in through the windows. 
Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. That's the only way to do it. You got to take everybody by surprise. Second thing I just realized is because we're passing oncoming traffic and I'm holding a microphone up so that you can speak. I'm just wondering if anybody's noticing that that's taking place because it would be a great story for somebody to tell. <laughs> yeah, they'd be like, did you see that, honey? It looked like he had a microphone in front of his face. But I can't do a good New Hampshire accent and have to be like, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I would offend everyone that I know in real life if I tried to do a New Hampshire accent. Uh, okay, so another random question, and I like this one. What is one of your favorite books that's not theological in nature that people might be surprised to learn that you really enjoy? Do you have one in mind? I do. Okay, I do. here we go. Um, it's a book that I read when I was in high school, and I recently actually just listened to it again on audiobook. It's called Watership Down. I think I've talked about it on the show, actually. Um, it's a book that is sort of strange, uh, but it's a book about rabbits, and it's it's sort of off the beaten path, but it's a it's sort of like an epic adventure of resettlement. Um, and it's kind of allegorical, but I don't think that's really what he was getting at. Um, but it's it's also authentic in that he spoke with experts on rabbit behavior in order to make sure that the the rabbits in the story don't do anything that real rabbits don't do. Um, and you know, other than talk to each other, but they don't like understand. Um, they don't understand like human speech really. They kind of get little gist of it. Um, but they don't like stand up. They don't walk around on two legs. They don't use cell phones. So it's it's a really interesting book, um, and I, I just really like it. It's it's a it's kind of a classic, even though it's not all that well known. Yeah, that's kind of. I do remember you mentioning that before, but that's definitely unexpected. If you get had me guess, <laughs> that I'm not sure what I would have guessed. It wouldn't have been that. Uh, for me, this is going to come across as way more highbrow than it actually is. But if I had to pick something, and I'm thinking like the farthest away for me from some kind of theological tome would be something like fiction. So Dostoevsky's uh, Brothers Karamazov is perhaps one of my favorite books. I think in part because it is like the path less traveled. Not a lot of people undertake that bad boy. But I, the more I read it, and I've read it a couple of times now, the more I find, do you ever have a book that like draws you in in its weirdness and like in the drama of the characters and you feel like there's maybe more you should be getting that you're not getting and so you that's the reason why you keep coming back to it because there's so much more you think that you ought to understand and everything seems layered and complex like things are in real life with relationships and how people are thinking and it's about these three brothers who are vastly different and experiencing something about formalized religion and about spirituality so maybe actually just undermine my own answer because maybe there is a great deal of theology in there that draws me to it. Um, but uh, that would be my answer. So here's another book question. I'll get this one a lot too. So let's talk about favorite book from a no longer living theologian. Favorite book, no longer living theologian. Because I'm putting you on the spot. I, I knew these questions because they were in my mind. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> like you were like, I've, I've never met a question about a book that I haven't enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, I actually don't think anybody's going to be surprised by this. My, my, the book that I would point to is On the Incarnation by Athanasius. Um, I read that book probably 30 or 40 times while I was in seminary. And his approach to Christology and how, and this is really just the patristic approach to, to Christology and scriptural interpretation. Athanasius believed that a full understanding of the Incarnation um, really unlocked the scriptures, that everything in the scriptures was Christological um, in one way or another. 
And so for me, when I started to get my head around Trinitarian theology and around Christology, and I started to study patristic theology, um, Athanasius was my focus. And this book was just so life-changing in like the, the best way possible. It really was. A lot of things in scripture just didn't make sense to me. And this was this is someone who had a degree in biblical studies, like a bachelor's in biblical studies, and there was still a ton of the scripture that just was a total black hole mystery to me. And after reading Athanasius and, and having the incarnation really kind of click as much as it can in our little finite limited minds, that book radically changed everything about my understanding of the Christian faith. Um, not in like a, it was something totally new and I was like a cultist before that, but you know, it was, it was like the lights turned on. Um, it's not quite a conversion experience, but it's something close to that where all of a sudden my faith and the Bible and spirituality, all of it suddenly made sense in a way that it didn't before. So hands down on the incarnation by Athanasius, it's a short read. You could probably read it in maybe five hours of total time. Um, you can probably even skip the second half when it gets into like the refutation of the Jews and the refutation of the Gentiles. Um, that, that, not that that's not good, but it's very time bound and it's not as timeless. Um, but that first half of that book is just a total game. There's a reason that it's one of the more widely read and published patristic documents of all time. That's a great answer. Um, and I love that book as well. I, I think, by the way, this is what good theological reading does for us, right? It doesn't supplant the scriptures. Instead, I wouldn't even say it illuminates the scriptures, but it does come alongside in a way that maybe allows us to access all of that knowledge that God has put into our hearts and the Holy Spirit is illuminated in a slightly different way by allowing us to turn over that knowledge in different ways. So I know some people would quibble with this because they'll say, well, listen, you should, you know, why are you reading books about theology? Just read the Bible. And of course, we would never say you shouldn't read the Bible. And yet there is something so worthwhile about men and women who have processed this, perhaps in ways that we can't, and then they're articulating it in ways that we now can understand in a different way. I actually think Athanasius does that really well. Is it highbrow? Maybe a little bit, but it's always good to be challenged and to read, like we said, above your level, a little bit over your head. Because I think without the Bible, of course, that book doesn't make sense. But of course, alongside the scriptures, we get to kind of almost see the things that maybe seemed so mundane to us in the scriptures in a new way, almost for the first time again. But these are, this is the gift that God gives us in having good theological reading to process, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think for me, I came out of college, you know, with a sort of mixed bag background in terms of theology. But I think like most uh, evangelicals in the U.S., you come out of out of your background and you're you're kind of a dispensationalist by default. And I think it's naive to think that we're not coming to the scripture with some sort of framework that we're interpreting the scripture through. I think we all have been given a hermeneutic by our Christian upbringing, whatever that means. And this book for me really kind of like retrained me to read the scripture in a way that is closer to the way that the earliest Christians did. And that really is to read the entire scripture with Christ as the hermeneutical legend or key to the scriptures. And I think for me, the reason that resonated so much is I was already starting to, from my own reading of scripture, starting to understand and come to a, a more self-consciously reformed theological identity. And believe it or not, Athanasius is, is right in line with the way that people like Calvin interpret the scriptures, where Christ is that 
key to the scriptures. That's not allegorizing the scriptures. It's not spiritualizing it. It's the apostolic way of interpreting the scriptures to look at it and say, how do we understand this in light of what Christ, who Christ is and what he's taught us? That's just the way we do that. Where a dispensational hermeneutic tends to look at everything in terms of like, what does this teach us about the end times? What does this teach us about Israel? Um, it's just a different framework. And I don't, I don't think it's the framework that the apostles held. So I think that's the reason it was such a game changer for me, not because it, not because it was giving me a framework for reading scripture that I, you know, was a brand new thing. It's not like I didn't have a framework before. Um, it's just, it, it sort of rehabilitated the framework that I already had in place. Yeah. Which is, again, what great theological reading can help you do. So for me, and this will come as no surprise, I think, to many of our listeners, most of my dead theologian reading pile is puritanical. And there's been so much there. For me, that's been the happy marriage of really deep theology and really lovely pietist living, bringing together both of those things in ways that are digestible, understandable, and then practicable. And so for me, it's got to be, I think... But this changes sometimes by the day. I would say the death of death and the death of Jesus Christ by uh, John Owen, in part because for me, Owen was always the Puritan iconoclast. He was the one that was a little bit different from the rest because he wasn't necessarily by trade a preacher. And he also had means, which was a little bit unusual for most of them. So here's a dude that did a, like a lot of tooting, of to, tooting, <laughs> tutoring. I don't know if he did a lot of tooting his own horn or any kind of tooting of that. Maybe he did. I don't know. But a lot of uh, tutoring of various subjects because he was just brilliant in his own way. And so his writing kind of has that flair, particularly of academia. And yet at the same time was written so that the average lay person might pick it up and comprehend and apprehend things about Christ in a new way that would lead them into behavioral change by the power of the Holy Spirit, driving them back into the scriptures and testing at the very things that he said. But, you know, the death of death and death of Christ is just this real, it's a really short work, but it's like the kind of thing that's, again, that should be obvious on the face. Like, of course, yes, that's true, right? Nobody would, I would say most Christians or any Christian shouldn't affirm, should not you know, go against that. They would affirm everything he's saying there. But this lovely application of what does that mean for you on a Tuesday morning or Wednesday evening is just remarkable to me. So I think that that's among the best things I've ever read by a theologian that's, that's not dead. So we are quickly drawing to the end of this podcast because we're quickly drawing close to our destination. Um, so let me ask you one quick question. Where we sit right now, as we're sitting in the car, as we're on our way, and this episode, by the way, has been brought to you by Road Trips. Road Trips. <laughs> They're great for putting a, shoving a microphone in somebody's face and making everybody else around you wonder, what is going on in that vehicle? Road Trips. The last question is, is there anything right now that you'd like the listeners to know about you? Um... I mean, I don't know of anything specific. That that's one of those on on your or on the hot seat questions. I think just you know my my overall program of living is I'm really trying to get back to basics of what what does it mean to really be a, a Christ follower, and I think for me that's a mixture of um, sort of practical living and then also sort of like theological self reformation. Uh, it's a matter of, sorry, there was a strange, strange car, strange noise that sounded like someone was knocking on the door and I'm like, there's nobody out there. Um, so I think it's just a matter of like something we should always be doing, right? We, I think we're quick to point to like Semper Reformanda as a slogan, 
uh, which in most people's mind means like we don't have to trust the church, which is actually the opposite of what Semper Reformanda meant. But there's an element of Semper Reformanda, you know, which means always reforming. That has to do with like we should always be reforming our own lives in light of the scripture. And I think for me, that hasn't always been in the forefront. There's always been a lot of like uh, just distractions in life. And I think part of my life becoming a father and just sort of like the day in, day out normalcy of things has given me some mental bandwidth to kind of think more in terms of like, I have to get back to basics. Well, that's a good answer. That was good for being like, I don't know if there's anything in particular that I want people to know, but this is how we do. No, no prep. Um, well, I'm going to just kind of springboard off of that because that was a really nice and very personal answer. So I'll try to equal it. I'm in a place right now where there's just a couple of things going on that are really challenging me in lots of ways, challenging me emotionally and physically and just the general wherewithal of life and finding that I feel more contingent now than ever. But what does it mean to rest in that contingency? And I think that for the most part, most of my life in the kind of casual season of living is really far from truly relying on God for outcomes that I think I cannot control. Now, of course, that's not true in a literal sense because there's nothing that we actually control. But this willingness to acknowledge and to feel that pressing, that deep pressing that says, you have way more than you can handle right now, is a season I just happen to be in. And so I'm trying to relish the fact that we have a Savior who takes care of all things and that we need to continually surrender and turn over all things to Him. I'm learning what that it's like to live in that space, not for a short period of time, but for a longer duration. And then to have some things that are upcoming that are going to be tests, either literal or figurative, where really the outcome is going to depend on God. And I have to be comfortable with whatever that outcome is. And I have to be comfortable with the process of trusting him day out, day in and day out to fulfill that purpose in my life. It's just a different place. I think we all struggle and find ourselves in those places across time. But right now, that's where I'm at. So what you said about basics does resonate with me because I need to make sure the plain things are the main things, but that to invest time in studying and in daily worship and in daily prayer such that I'm resolute in this place that all of the ambiguity and uncertainty that might be swirling around is a place that I'm very comfortable because I have the Savior and he holds me by the hand in the midst of all that ambiguity. So what I know to be true and to be steadfast is him even if there are other things around me that feel less than that. So it's a place I don't think most people say like, yeah, let me get some of that real quick. But I'm trying to see that there are blessings in that and that it's not a bad place to be overall. But I'm happy for when it will end. And it will end, you know? So, well, Tony, I think this has been a great conversation with you in the car. I'm so glad that everybody has come along with us. We're literally pulling into our destination. Like I just, people just can't see how great podcasters we are. We time everything perfectly. This has been just a lovely journey. So I'm so glad that uh, people were willing to come along with us on this little car ride. And now we're apparently going to have some fun trying to find a parking space. So while you do that, I'm just going to say, listen, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>